Secretary Mar and uh, leading us now into the Word of God. So let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to actually several places. We're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 3, and then we're going to move over to Thessalonians this morning, and I'll come back to 2 Peter in the weeks uh, to come to finish that up. But 2 Peter, and then over to 2 Thessalonians. We've been looking at, at least from last time, Jesus is coming again. And of course, from Scripture, we know life and history are definitely heading somewhere, that we Christians know that we are living in the last days. The last days started with the first coming of Jesus and will continue through the end of the age. So Christians are looking for the blessed hope. And I've already mentioned that even though it has been 2,000 years since the Apostle Peter penned these words, the admonition and even um, remains really the same as when he first penned them. Be ready and stay continually prepared. Don't forget, God's timetable is not our timetable. Until then, we must remain ready and press on to live for the Lord. I came across this a short story of uh, a man named Ben. When his boss died, they told him that he had gone to heaven. Now, Ben had spent a lot of time with his boss, many years with his boss. And he shook his head when they said that. And he says, I am afraid my boss did not go there. And the people said to him, well, what do you mean? He says, because when my boss went on a trip or on a journey, he talked about it a lot. He planned months and months before it happened. I never heard him talk about going to heaven. Never heard him talked about getting ready to go there. Now that can tell a lot about a lot of people and how true this short story is that people get ready preparing for so many things in this life and they neglect the most important thing to get ready for eternity which is a lot longer than this life get ready to meet God so Christians ought to be getting ready each and every day, living in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and before the eyes of God, because we know that Jesus will return again. First for his church, and then he will return with his saints to establish his kingly reign on earth as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Apostle Peter wanted the recipients of his letter to have their remembrance of Christ's second coming to be uncontaminated by the seductive influences of their own senses and their flesh and the subtle attacks of the mockers of truth. From last time we were in this text, we learned that in order to get the truth of the second coming of Christ to stick in the mind of believers. The Apostle Peter reminded 
all who will hear and read his two letters, that Christ will come because three facts have been established. The word of God had announced it over and over again. The mockers, when they will be here, will attack it. And the Lord God himself has affirmed it. But there's always questions surrounding the second coming of Christ, such as, how will he come? What will happen when he comes? When will he come? What will be what will the followers of Christ or what should the followers of Christ do until he comes? See, not all questions about end time teachings teaching can be answered in order to satisfy everyone's curiosity and inquiring minds. We must stay within the framework of scriptures. Stay within its boundaries. So some questions aren't going to be answered because the scriptures don't answer it. However, we do know dogmatically that Christ will come because God keeps his promises. Also, we do know from the admonitions of God's word that it is imperative for all Christians to be informed about end-time teaching and to remain informed from the Word of God so that every Christian, every Christian will be ready for what's next on the Lord, in the Lord's program and then be faithful until that day. So today, I would like to focus your attention on two important similar phrases found in two passages in 2 Peter chapter 3. Then I would like you to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians to see a problem that caused deep concern among the church of Thessalonica surrounding these phrases. So 2 Peter chapter 3, notice in verse number 10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And then, verse number 12 of chapter 3, looking for the hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. Now, I would like to go to the, flesh those passages out this morning, but that's not my intention today. My intention today is to highlight the two phrases in each of these passages, which are similar, the day of the Lord and the day of God. So these two passages start to answer the question, how will it come? In both passages, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and will come with plunder and destruction and devastation. At one time, water brought judgment. This time, fire will do so. And it will alter the heaven and the earth forever. Now, saying that and keeping in mind, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we'll be looking at Thessalonians chapter uh, 2 and then go into 1 Thessalonians also. So the scripture is giving 
encouragement and assurance in this book to suffering Christians. And keep in mind, these Thessalonians, because of their identification with Jesus Christ, were coming under severe trials. The Apostle Paul purposed to encourage the Christians to persevere even in the face of Jewish opposition and heavy persecution. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 14, it says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So these Thessalonians, in other words, were under persecution. They were under opposition of the Jews, and they were getting a beating for it. But they remained faithful to the word of God. They were continuing in the truths of Scripture. But in order for them to continue to grow strong in the Lord, some doctrinal issues had to be addressed and corrected. And this could be the same for us today who wonder about the details of the last days and the day of the Lord. There is always a reason why any portion of Scripture is penned, and this second epistle to the Thessalonians is no exception. Something happened. A new problem had arisen between the time of the writing of the two letters. So in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is addressing a problem which was causing some confusion among the believers. Now, what was the problem that caused deep concern among the church of Thessalonica? Apparently, someone, someone had caused concern on the part of believers with regard to their relationship to the day of the Lord. If you look at me with me at 2 Thessalonians 2.2, it says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, consequently, the letter takes on a flavor providing assurance to believers, which include at least two things. First, an assurance that the day of the Lord had not yet come. And secondly, an assurance that believers will have no involvement in the day of the Lord. So, with that in mind, this first heading here of assurance of non-involvement in the day of the Lord brings up a bogus claim in verse number 1 and 2. Now look with me at verse number 1. It says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard... He mentions two things. To the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. I, think, I believe that's put together like that for a specific reason that the believers are looking for Christ and they're looking for them to gather with him. And then in verse 2, he brings up the bogus claim that you not be quickly shaken from your composure 
or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us in the effect that the day of the Lord has come. It was highly probable that the Thessalonians received a pseudo-Pauline letter claiming that the day of the Lord was upon them or had already passed. So the very fact that they were going through severe persecution along with a letter that they thought their beloved apostle wrote moved them to conclude that the day of the Lord had come upon them and they were in tribulation and hopefully waiting for an imminent appearance of Jesus Christ. So if you notice in verse number one, their attention was directed to on, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So it's not hard to understand that if the Thessalonians thought this letter was actually from Paul but wasn't from Paul and that they were going through tribulation and this letter was saying that the day of the Lord had come that they would be thrown off balance and disturbed concerning the truth about the day of the Lord. So why should the idea of the day of the Lord cause such an alarm and disrupt the peace of mind within the believers there in that region of the world and in time? Probably the most prominent events in their thinking could include tribulation and judgment and destruction. Such a portrayal occurs in many of the related Old Testament passages from which the concept actually comes. Joel talks about this day of the Lord. Obadiah talks about it. Zephaniah talks about it. These are all Old Testament prophets. Zechariah talks about it. Daniel talks about it. All the prophets in some way talk about the day of the Lord. It was to be a time that would strike terror into the hearts of men. The Thessalonians had begun to wonder whether they had also fallen victim to the day of judgment and missed it and the day of the Lord. So keep in mind that these believers were well informed concerning the end times. Now look with me back at chapter 1 or chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, just book back. It says in verse number 1 of chapter 5, Now, as to the time and epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Now he's talking about that these believers were not in the dark about the day of the Lord. They were well instructed in eschatological matters. From this passage, we... There's a pre-understanding of the end times. It's assumed, in fact, in verse number 2 of 5, chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, it says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So in other words, that he is being more specific here, and he says to them, you yourselves know full well. In other words, you know accurately about end time teaching for sure they have received prior definite detailed information about times and seasons 
to the extent he writes to them, you have no need of anything to be written to you. None at all. So it's clear that these Thessalonians needed no instruction. They already had the instruction. They needed to be encouraged, but they also needed correction because something has gone wrong. So by way of calling attention to the facts, which they know already accurately, Paul is actually calling them back to what was originally taught. And, and that's true of all of us. We, we have to be brought back many times to what is originally taught in the Word of God. And so the writer assumes that the reader and the readers have an Old Testament understanding of the day of the Lord. Actually, the phrase uh, in the Greek with the absence of the article before day is a way that Paul places an emphasis on the quality of the day. In other words, this day of the Lord is a day like no other. It is a day of such character as belongs to the Lord alone. And the day of the Lord includes more than one day or even a short period of time. It actually includes a complex of events that extend over a period of time and culminates with the events described in 2 Peter. Now, when you read 2 Peter, it looks like it's like one day and the Lord comes, right? And then new heaven and new earth. But there's many things that happen before that day. It's like in the days of Noah. Noah did get into the ark one day, but he preached 120 years telling people of what was going to take place before he walked into that ark, and then the judgment finally fell. So the day of the Lord is a, a day that really is an extended period of time, a complex of events. Now, we're living in the church age right now, and... Um, we believe the next thing from Scripture on God's calendar is the rapture of the church. The church is going to be taken up. And then, of course, that begins the tribulation period of seven years. And then following the tribulation period, the second coming of Christ, and then the millennial kingdom comes, and then the final judgment, new heaven and new earth, eternal state, lake of fire, are coming at the end. So actually, Second Peter is talking about the finale of the day of the Lord, when it finally comes. Thessalonians is talking about a problem of a monkey wrench being thrown in their understanding of the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is triggered by the rapture of the church and extends to the creation of the new heavens and new earths after the close of the millennial age and includes a period of tribulation, and during that tribulation time, a lot of deception, a lot of sinful living and behavior doing during that period of time, and then, of course, the whole millennium and the judgments following the millennium. So we know that God has events that are going to take place before the final finale of the conclusion of the day of the Lord. So in other words, this day of the Lord was familiar to the Hebrew prophets and was known as a time in which God's sovereignty 
was manifested in a particular way. For example, the prophet Joel, in Joel chapter 2, verse 30 and 31, Joel says, it's the great and awesome day of the Lord. It will be a day where the sun will turn into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then Amos, chapter 5, verse 18 through 20, another Old Testament prophet, he said this, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? Question. It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him or goes home and leans his hand against a wall and the snake, a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light? even gloom with no brightness in it at all. See, in other words, in that passage of Scripture, there is nowhere to run when the day of the Lord comes and is instituted. The only way to be rescued from it is to be ready, and the way to be ready is to know Christ as Lord and Savior. So both these Hebrew prophets Both Joel and Amos connect the day of the Lord with the climax of God's wrath upon the earth. Daniel, the prophet Daniel, referred to it as a time of trouble. Daniel's 70th week prior to Messiah's earthly reign. And the point being that the day of the Lord is closely associated with judgment in Scripture and then final judgment. In other words, the Thessalonians understood based on the Old Testament and what they were taught that the day of the Lord began with a period of intense earthly suffering that serves as a prelude to Messiah's personal return to earth. Remember, it's a complex of events, not just one day. So the Thessalonians had already demonstrated their resolve and perseverance under trials. But since the last letter they received, persecution intensified. And some among their number had concluded that they had indeed entered that period of wrath. Now, brethren, if one day you woke up and someone you thought was in the know told you your persecution shows that you are already in the day of the Lord when you were expecting the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, you too, I too, would be confused and frightened. Well, this was a bogus claim and it needed to be corrected. And so this is what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 onward actually does. It begins to make a correction to the conditions that will be in place prior to, or in the scheme of the day of the Lord. And so let's look at the correct condition. I'll just start that this morning. I'll not finish it. I'll finish it next time. But look at the correct condition. We're going to look at verse 3 and 4. But before I get there, Paul's main concern in these matters is that the beloved believers would not be deceived. Concerning end times, he intends to dispel their ignorance by teaching that the day of the Lord 
could not have already taken place. So the Thessalonians thought they were in the day of the Lord because they were in tribulation and they received a letter they thought was from Paul but wasn't. And so Paul explains to them that the day of the Lord has not yet come because you're still here. You're still here. So first, Scripture records that there are certain things which must occur before the full force of God's end-time judgment is manifested. And so there's going to come first a defiance. Now look at verse number 3 of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. A defiance yet to come. A defiance yet to come in the form of an apostasy from true religion. You just can't get away from the passage where it says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Now, in the original Greek, it will not come is not there. Translators help us out. So it's for unless the apostasy comes first, which is important. And you just really can't get away from the force of this text. The verb here is in an imperative force, means meaning to really seduce someone and to deceive someone and want to lead them astray. Paul broadens the warning to go beyond conversation and letters to include tricks of any kind. And it's so amazing how gullible some of the saints are when a new deceiver pulls off some stunt in religion. In this case, like a letter disguised to come from the Apostle Paul, to deceive them, to really throw them off track, to pull the carpet out, in other words, from underneath them so they would be unstable in what the truth is about end times and their relationship to the Lord and the day of the Lord. And also, you notice in this passage of Scripture, it says, unless the apostasy comes first. So the word first really means the first of several in a sequence of happenings. In other words, the day of the Lord is not present unless first in sequence within that day there has come an apostasy. And the word apostasy really is the Greek word that is defined as falling away. Uh, It's closely related to the, the Greek word for divorce or to separate. And it seems clear that the word of God here means a religious revolt, that people are revolting against the truth. In fact, apostates are those who fall away from true faith, abandoning whatever they formerly professed to believe. So the term describes those whose beliefs are so deficient as to place themselves now outside the scope of true Christianity. So when God is denied and there the book of God is denied and does not fit the narrative of the day, then people can do what they want. They can live the way they want. There's a man that, that recently wrote a book. I don't know what his spiritual faith is, but he seems to 
write a book, and the name of his book is The Dark Agenda, David Horowitz. And his premise of the book is a war to destroy Christian America. So he, he's onto something. I guess I have to read that book now and uh, see what he says about it. It's maybe an unbeliever writing and noticing things going on in the world and, and, and saying, wait, something's happening here. They're undergirding the Christian foundation of this nation. If we don't have a Christian foundation in some respects from the beginning, we don't have a nation. So those who fall away into apostasy demonstrate that their faith was never real to begin with. They were never really Christians. Because true, true Christians persevere to the end. They do not apostatize. And many can hear the truth and somewhat give verbal assent that they believe the truth and still walk away from it. Something will cause them to walk away. It's like in John 6 when Jesus told them of the way, the truth, and the life and told them of the gospel and how to be made right with God. There was a multitude of people following him. And then after he got done preaching, they all left except 12 people, which ended up being his disciples. Because they, they realized, where are we going to go if we stop believing in you? If you, you are the way into the kingdom of God, if you are the doorway, if you are the, the way, the truth, and the life, where else could we go but you? There's no other place to go. So they apostatize. And Demas, uh, in 2 Timothy, who loved the present world, walked away because the enticement of the world was more enticing and real to him than even Christ himself. So these examples, and many other in Scripture, are, are a large, and there's going to be a larger and wider spread of religious apostasy that will take place in the last days prior to the day of the Lord. Also, Scripture records that there is another thing that must occur before the full force of God's end-time judgment will be manifested. Now, if you're turning back to 2 Thessalonians, if you look at chapter uh, 2, verse number 3, it says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, the word of God is now correcting what whatever that letter said. And the Old Testament book of Daniel pointed to another yet future historical figure which fits the description of the Antichrist. This personage is to be identified with the man of lawlessness. Now, that's why I had Daniel read this morning, because the little horn in Daniel 7, the final ruler of the last Gentile world empire, is symbolized by a little horn, the Antichrist, where it says in Daniel, as for the ten horns... Out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous one. So this little horn of Daniel 7 is the coming man of sin, the Antichrist, who rules for seven years and is destroyed by Christ at the second coming of Christ. Also, the ruler 
who will come, Daniel chapter 9, the prince that shall come on the scene will make a covenant with Israel. He is one of the ten toes of the image of Daniel 2 and the little horn who emerges from the ten horns. This prince makes a covenant with Israel and protects them from their enemies probably so they can build their temple and restore their sacrifices. Also, Daniel 11, this man is called a willful king. In Zechariah 11, he's called the foolish shepherd, a man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians, and the Antichrist in 1 John 2.18. Children, it is the last hour, just as you heard that Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Also in Revelation 6-2, he is the rider of the white horse. In Revelation 13, he is the beast. The beast out of the sea, and the sea represents the Gentile nations. So the attributes of this character cannot go unnoticed. The Apostle Paul is pulling from Daniel. That's where he's getting his information from. Daniel already has given us a good description of the evil character of this end-time man, this man of lawlessness, this son of perdition or destruction, is not Satan, but some definite person who is doing the work of Satan. The implication is that the man of sin is hidden somewhere who will be suddenly manifested, revealed. That will be his apocalypse. Disclosed. From Daniel 11, he is self-willed. That means then he, the king will do just as he pleases. This king will do whatever he desires, meaning he will have an unchallenged Authority. Antichrist will arrogantly believe that he can function sufficient, sufficiently without anyone else and without God. And the bottom line is that Antichrist does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants, without restraint, with no one questioning him. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So the Antichrist will go far, far beyond anything the world has yet to see. He is egotistical. Daniel 11:36. He will exalt and magnify himself. He has a huge ego. In fact, the the verbs used there in Daniel are verbs only used of God in Scripture. And to those who impiously assert themselves against God. In verse 4 also, 2 Thessalonians 2, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. 
Like I said, I'm not going to finish this passage today, but I just want to give those things out to you about how he's correcting them about the events that will take place in this sequence of time called the Day of the Lord. So the Antichrist will present himself to the world as being God. He will be an atheist. Daniel 11:36. he will exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. So Antichrist will be an atheist and reject all religions except the one he establishes when he declares himself God. So the sense is, the day of the Lord is not present unless first in sequence within that day there has come an apostasy, a falling away of the true faith. And then following following that, the apostasy's beginning, the revealing of the man of lawlessness. Therefore, the following away and the revealing of the man of lawlessness are signs which fall within the early stages of the day of the Lord after it has begun and not prior to it. So based on these findings, Paul can encourage his readers that the non-occurrence of the, these signs mean the day of the Lord has not yet begun. It has not yet begun yet in our day. But it's coming. See, God promises believers not wrath, but rest. Not judgment, but his presence. If you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So he is encouraging him, them to think of the Lord coming to get them. And then also back to 1 Thessalonians 5 in verse number 9, where he says, talking in this section about the day of the Lord, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that wrath there, I believe he's talking about eschatological wrath. He's delivering the church from that. And then also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So the Lord, whatever way that one would interpret that, the Lord is going to rescue believers from the wrath that is going to be poured out. I believe it's going to be poured out on the world, and we're not going to be here for it. So then the day of the Lord is first triggered by the rapture of the saints in the air to meet the Lord and to be with him forever, which triggers the start of God's wrath identified by the apostasy and the revealing of the man of lawlessness and consequently the coming of Christ for his church is followed by an extended period of time which God releases all the judgment within the tribulation period. 
So God's children, in whom he loves, will be caught up to himself before the seven-year period. Of course, by saying that, I am saying that this is a pre-tribulational rapture of the church before the tribulation. I believe that 1st 2nd Thessalonians make that argument. So the day of the Lord is coming, but it's not here yet. The mockers, back in 2nd Peter, the mockers mock the notion of Christ's return and willfully conclude that there's no God, there's no judgment. They proceed in this thinking because they don't want to give up their lusts. They love their sin. And by their assessment and forgetful view of history, things seem to be the same. That's why they come up with the question, where where is this coming? It's been a long time. He's not here yet. I don't see anything happening that gives any indication he's even coming. And why is that? Because you know what? The day that all this stuff takes place, there's going to be a narrative in the world that's just going to kind of say this. Hey, we don't see anything happening. I guess it's peace, peace, peace and safety. That's going to be the mantra of the day. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be all right. It's always going to be the same. Right? Well, look back to 1 Thessalonians for a moment. And chapter 5, verse 2 to 6. Notice what Paul says to them there. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in the darkness that the day of the Lord would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light, sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. There it again. Be ready, serving the Lord. So these false teachers, believers, have selective memories. They don't desire to recollect anything that's true. I mentioned this morning because there is a war on righteousness. There's a war on truth. You don't even, people don't even know what truth is today. So it's being undermined. Everything is being undermined, twisted. So those who are in control can control people. So a generation with that mindset will be unprepared for anything that's on God's calendar. The warning in 2 Peter is this day of God's justice will come like a thief when it comes on these who don't expect it. Like a burglar who comes by stealth to sift through your belongings while you're asleep. As 2 Peter 3.10 tells us, and you want to turn back there now, 2 Peter, it says, But the day of the Lord will 
verse 10, will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. See, that's the finale of the day of the Lord that Peter's talking about. He's not mentioning anything in between. You've got to get that from other books. So the day of the Lord will happen when people least expect it and are least prepared for it. And the false teachers will be teaching to undermine the truth of the coming of Christ and the events that will take place. And when the false teachers undermine belief in God's promises and the promise of his coming, which is, which is a huge doctrine in the Christian faith and in the word of God, well, then they deny God himself. But remember, God keeps his promises. He will be back. Whether you go first or he comes, we're going with him. And he'll come just at the right moment. Now, will there, be, will there be ample evidence of his return? Yes, there will if people will look at the truth. But it will happen when people are willfully and ignorantly unprepared for what will take place. So ultimately the point is that the world will end and this close of human history will come unexpectedly When the cataclysm arrives, it will be final. God will destroy the cosmos with fire, as well as the ungodly, and he will create a new heavens and a new earth for his people where righteousness dwells. But God is delaying. The loving nature of God has led to his patience, desiring more time for more and more people to repent of their sin and come and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's what it says in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. God is holding out all these things, holding them back with his great patience so people can be saved. Now, if you are saved and you know it, what are you supposed to be doing in the meantime? Well, if you look at the last chapter of 2 Peter, just a few things. I wanna, I'm going to mention them these things more in the, in the other messages. But here's the first thing, verse 14 of chapter 3. Be diligent to be found in Christ. Notice what it says. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him. In other words, make sure that you're in Christ. And be diligent about it. Don't be lazy about it. Be sober-minded about it. Make sure, didn't Peter start out his book saying, make sure you're elect, make sure you're chosen. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you, 
For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Be diligent. Make sure you're a believer. Don't put it off for tomorrow or some other time because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. No one is. And then notice the next thing he says in verse number 14 of chapter 3 of 2 Peter. It says, be it says, be found in him in peace. In peace. Peace of what? Well, the peace of God or the peace with God that you know the only true peace you can have in your heart is to know you're right with God. Right? That means to be at peace, and the only way I can be at peace with God, Romans 5.1, I'm, I'm made at peace by the blood of the cross. Right? The blood of the cross washes away my sin, takes away the condemnation, satisfies the justice of God. So what? So I can be saved and know it. Not think I'm saved, not hope I'm saved. I know I am. Not based on anything I've done or you've done. Based on everything God's done. That's salvation. See, while we wait, we make sure that these things are present in our life. And then notice in verse 14 again, here's the next thing we do to live spotless and blameless lives. All right? Not only that you're saved, but how are you living? What's your behavior like? What's your conduct like? What's your words like? What's your thinking like? All those things are to be considered by a believer. Why? Because we're getting ready to see him. We're getting ready to go to him. So we need to be spotless and blameless. Not perfect. God makes us perfect. But we're being sanctified, set apart, being made holy. And then notice again... The next thing in verse number 17 of 2 Peter 3, be on guard. Look what he says. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Why? So that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. You want to stay stable as Christians? Make sure you have your armor on. Make sure you are watching out everything in your life, every person that comes in your life, every thought that goes into your mind, every book you read, every teacher you listen to. You guard everything. I was having a conversation the other day about, I don't know, with, I said, I don't know, I don't believe anybody anymore. The only thing I believe is this. I believe God's word. Because there's so much garbage being spewed out constantly over the airways. And if people are getting that as their constant diet, they're going to be thrown off. Because you're not going to, you know, it feels like you've got a fire hose and you're getting all this garbage going in your mind, right? They say garbage in, garbage out, right? Get the garbage out of your mind. Be on guard. Put on the whole armor of God that you stand up against the wiles of the devil. And unprincipled and men who want to cause you to trip away and fall. And then, verse 13, keep looking. Look at, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Keep looking. There's eternity. That's where I'm heading. That's where we're heading. This world's going to pass away. It's, it's disposable. Look to eternity. And then, until then, verse number 18 of chapter 3, keep growing in your knowledge of Christ, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. See, are you ready? 
Are you ready? Is the church ready? Is the church ready for persecution? That it seems like it's coming quicker than we want. We need to be ready. And we need to be stable, strong, unmovable Christians who are not going to bend to some pressure. And God will make us that way. He'll give us the strength when the time is needed. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the awesomeness of your word. Thank you, Lord, that you've taken care of everything. Lord, make us faithful believers. Make us soldiers in the field. Make us strong in the faith that anything Satan could hurl at us, we would hold up the shield of faith and we would ward off all his missiles. Let us be our, our feet shod the preparation of the gospel of peace. Let our breastplate of righteousness be on trusting in your righteousness for our salvation. Lord, let us put on the helmet of salvation in which we are, our minds are being transformed constantly by the word of God and making us strong soldiers who are able to battle with deception and things that are not true and bring them in in and under the light of Scripture and expose them. And then I pray, Lord, we would take up the short dagger of the sword of the Spirit and be able to fight off those lies with the truth of Scripture and be found victorious as we pray and as we speak the mysteries of the gospel to others as we ought to. Lord, bless us and give us strength during these days. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.